Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Hello, and welcome to today's Bunker. I'm Andrew Harrison. On December the 1st, the Daily Mail told us that Rishi Sunak has created a, quote, winter of discontent unit at the heart of government to oversee the response to a wave of public sector strikes. The quote marks are telling because there's no evidence that the responsible minister, Oliver Dowden, or anyone around him actually said winter of discontent. But they didn't have to because the winter of discontent from 1978 to 1979 occupies a talismanic status as the alpha nightmare of British politics. It was a helter-skelter of uncontrollable industrial unrest in which 4.6 million workers went on strike, including rail, water, bakeries, haulage, nursing, ambulances, grave digging and refuse collection. It was all directed against the Labour government's anti-inflation pay policies and a savagely cold snap of winter weather made things worse, freezing cities and cutting off rural areas. The winter of discontent generated its own gallery of indelible images, of picket lines, of rubbish piled high in city centres and, eventually, the Conservatives' election-winning Britain Isn't Working poster. At the centre of it all was one enduring myth of a low point for Britain, that the strikers had left the dead unburied. For many, this was the moment when an age of engagement with trade unions died and the harsher, more combative Thatcher era became inevitable. But almost 45 years later, do we fully understand the winter of discontent, especially when first-hand memories are becoming harder and harder to come by? And are we really in the middle of another one? To help us understand this pivotal moment, I'm joined by Colin Hay, Professor of Political Sciences at Sciences Po in Paris. Hello, Colin. Welcome to the bunker. Hello. Nice to be with you. So you're of a similar age to me, born in 1968, and I was born in 1967. What first-hand memories do you have of the winter of discontent? Well, I'm not sure I have terribly many. And in, like a lot of people, what one often thinks of as one's memory of the winter of discontent doesn't necessarily come from the winter of discontent itself. A lot of people remember the lights going out, or at least that's what they say. But the lights going out is much more associated with the three-day week, which happened uh, six years earlier, in fact. So it's kind of interesting how our images and memories of these events have kind of, even from the beginning, became relatively quickly kind of confused. Uh, and quite a lot of the press coverage of the events of the winter of discontent itself as they unfolded used imagery from 1973, 1974, uh, and all the rest of it. I have a very clear memory of uh, when the winter of discontent impacted upon me because the comics stopped coming out for nine weeks during the haulage strike uh, indeed, and I yes. was like stuck for my weekly reading I had to wait nine weeks to find out if a giant scorpion was going to snip someone's head off with its claw well let's talk about that original winter discontent first and then we'll talk about how it's remembered I mean the events themselves 
when you look at them, they're full of concepts that are fallen out of use. Free collective bargaining, prices and incomes policies, the idea that the government could set pay rises. Is it possible to say that there's an origin point for the events of the winter of discontent? Yes, but I think the origin point, we have to go back a little a little bit before. In fact, we do need to go back to 1973 in a way. And it's kind of interesting because that is that that creates the possibility of a comparison with what's going on today too. Because what, what happened in 1973 was a war, the Yom Kippur War, which disrupted the price of energy. And that sounds familiar because that's, in a sense, what we're living through at the moment, which is the Ukraine-Russia conflict has generated a massive spike in energy prices, which has generated inflation. The Yom Kippur War had a similar kind of an effect linked to oil prices above all, so different kind of energy, but with similar kind of consequences. It generated inflation and it was the management of that inflationary episode, which, if you like, culminated uh, in the winter of discontent, almost the disaster of the winter of discontent. Um, and the winter of discontent becomes important, I think, for me as an analyst of British politics, because it becomes, in a sense, the symbolic point of transition from a period of history, the post-war period, towards a new period of history governed, if you like, initially uh, by Thatcher and then the legacy of Thatcherism uh, into the present day. And I suppose the interesting question is whether the events we are now living through Firstly, whether there are any similarities with that winter of discontent period, uh, and secondly, whether they might also mark a point of transition between a, a certain period of British politics and a, and a new period of politics. The key characteristic, if I'm right, if my dimly remembered politics A-level is right, is is that we were looking at a corporatist era where it was expected that trade unions and government would work together hand in hand and that there would be uh, a great deal of negotiation going on. Uh, between the, I mean, you barely hear the TUC at all these days, but then it was on the news every single night. Indeed, it is interesting, I think. I mean, we're talking now about the present, but it's interesting to see the TUC, I think, calling today for for wanting to be involved in the conversation. Mm. But the fact that it's not involved in the conversation is an indication of how times have changed massively. Um, but yes, going back to the 70s, we're going back to a period in which this thing called corporatism in a sense, existed and was seen to be part of the management of the economy, and particularly when it came to the management of inflation. Corporatism is a sort of tripartite, three-party negotiation between the government, or mediated and brokered by the government on the one hand, and the representatives of workers through their unions uh, and the employers. And the idea was, in a sense, together they would come to an agreement about what the appropriate um, level of, uh, of wage inflation uh, should be. In fact, what we see, I mean, that, that has existed since the 1960s. And the 1970s, after this inflationary spike associated with the Yom Kippur War, saw a return to corporatist measures, which hadn't really been used before since the mid-1960s. And of course, the return to corporatism came in a much more difficult economic context than that of the mid-1960s, with staggeringly high inflation, peaking at close to 30% uh, in this period. Uh, and so in a sense, this was corporatism in adversity. And what became clear, and the winter of discontent was the culmination of this, was in a sense how the government and employers, but the government particularly, was trying to secure a control of inflation by suppressing wages relative to inflation. So, And we have the idea of what's called an incomes policy or a price and incomes policy. An incomes policy is an agreement, in effect, for as long as it holds, 
to set wage increases at a certain level, and that level is well below the actual rate of inflation. Again, there's parallels with today. We don't have an incomes policy today, but the government is constantly talking about not uh, not allowing uh, wage increases uh, close to and certainly not exceeding the rate of actually existing inflation. The idea being that it's only by keeping wage uh, deals below the rate of inflation and workers suffering as a consequence of that, that we can control uh, this inflationary episode associated with the rise in energy prices. How materially serious was the strike in comparison to other you know, major industrial action events like the general strike in 1926 or the miners' strike in 1974? Because this is my memory of it is that this was the kind of a culmination of a decade of industrial action where ordinary people really felt it. Yes, I think that's I think that's absolutely right. And the numbers, certainly in comparison today, are quite staggering. Though I, I don't want to underestimate the extent to which uh, lots and lots and lots of people are suffering as a consequence of the industrial un- unrest that we we see today too. But the numbers are quite staggering in a way. So the twenty second of January nineteen seventy nine, which is probably the kind of peak moment in this, saw a one day coordinated public sector stoppage with one point five million workers withdrawing their labour on that day. If you look at the figures for the time we're living through, um, take October 2022, for instance, during the entire month of October, 400,000 days were lost through industrial action. So the order of magnitude is very, very, is very, very different here. I think in 1979, something like 30 million days were lost to industrial action. Um, and uh, so, so this is a massive event. Um, it's not, however, as massive as the general strike in terms of the number of days lost. And Massive and coordinated strikes of that kind were a much more regular experience in the 1970s than they than they are today. What was unusual about the winter of discontent was, to some extent, its endurance. It's it, the length of time over which this unfolded, running really from September 1978 all the way through to February uh, 79. I want to ask you about those kind of those particular nightmare moments that are always brought up that you know the we've all seen photographs of pyramids of bin bags in leicester square and elsewhere across the country and the story of the unburied dead although obviously we never saw them but that was that's something that is always brought up and in fact that was the grave digger strike was only on merseyside and thameside wasn't it Indeed, uh, it was Thameside and Liverpool. I mean, it's it's not an apocryphal story in the sense that there was a dispute going on, and it's credible to think that some burials were reorganised around uh, around around that. But it became almost, I mean, as you say, not an actual image, but a kind of symbolic representation of what was going on here. And particularly, I think, associated with the idea which became dominant of this as a situation in which the country was being held to ransom by the trade unions. This was a story of union power. And essentially, we had reached a point by the end of the 1970s where it was the unions who were governing the nation, uh, not the government that was governing the nation. There was a, a sense, and popular history talks a lot about this, that Britain was almost seeing itself in a state of decay in the 1970s, that the government was falling apart. There were even sort of, you know, sort of the ghost of the idea of, of a right-wing coup. Did you see the winter of discontent as the kind of apogee of that? Because I know you've, you've talked a lot, you've mentioned it here, that it was in some senses a manufactured crisis or a remade crisis, where what really happened and what people think happened and the way the political uses it were put to 
are all very different. I think that's right. I think seeing with the benefit of hindsight and possibly even seeing at the moment itself, there's a kind of very interesting kind of myth building process which is being constructed. And to understand what was really going on, I think we have to see this as the culmination of a phase, a period of time uh, in which quite a lot happened relatively rapidly, but but sustained over, over, over a number of years. In particular, what happened was that the Conservative administration of Ted Heath, in a sense, was brought down by its failure to be able to negotiate what what Labour would subsequently call a social contract, i.e. to get corporatism to work in adversity. So essentially, what happened in 1974, following the the three-day week, uh, is that Ted Heath went to the polls and essentially posed the question, who governs Britain? Is it the trade unions or is it us? And the answer was, whoever governs Britain is not you. They didn't lose decisively, but the Labour administration, of the first Labour administration of Wilson was elected without an overall majority. Wilson then went back to the polls six months later and was returned with a tiny majority. Um, and it's the fact that it was such a tiny majority that allowed, for instance, the sanctions against Ford not to be voted uh, through Parliament. So all of that's very important. So we have a situation in which the Conservatives, in a sense, can't govern using then conventional techniques to deal with the hyperinflation, the so-called stagflation uh, of this period. Labour comes in in adversity. It's not an easy time to govern. Uh, It's still got this massive inflation problem to deal with. It dealt with that, in fact, relatively well. For most of this period, 74 to 79, uh, inflation is falling uh, from just under 30% to around about 8% just before the the winter of discontent itself. So, So there's a sense in which Labour is able to govern using corporatist techniques because it has a better relationship with the trade unions. But this becomes more and more difficult. Uh, The winter of discontent is the moment where it becomes, it starts to become impossible. What are the key sort of misconceptions about the winter of discontent then? You've mentioned the idea that the country wasn't neck deep in unburied corpses, no matter what people might believe was the case. What other ways do we misremember this? Well, I think the story of this as a story of union power is really quite problematic in a way. In fact, the story of the winter of discontent is is even more complicated when it comes to union power, because it's not really the story of a coordinated campaign led by union leaders. In fact, it's more rank and file union members rejecting the advice of union leaders and withdrawing their labour. Union leaders were really fearful of what eventually happened, which was a general election precipitated by this leading to a sea change in approach, uh, the administration of Margaret Thatcher. So there was a sense in which if it's the power of anyone, it's the power of rank and file union members rather than union leaders. But even that, I think, is to misconstrue the idea. There's a final myth, too. And the myth, I think, the, the second element of the myth is that economic performance in the years running up to the, uh, the winter of discontent was poor, and it got better after 1979. Um, In fact, as I've suggested already, inflation was relatively successfully managed between 1974 and 1978-79, coming down from over 25% to around about 8% in a period of in which economic growth was also, it was was fluctuating, but it it was net positive. 
by the time we get to 1979, 1980, 1981, 1980-81 is the longest sustained recession of the post-war period by that point. Unemployment is racing upwards from 0.5 million to 3 million, peaks later in uh, at 3 million. So it's not necessarily the story of economic catastrophe, winter of discontent as the moment of crisis, and then the restoration of economic normality under the early Thatcher administration. It took a very long time. You might recall the phrase, if it's not hurting, it's not working. Uh, It was hurting an awful lot. Uh, Three million of those, many of whom had been on strike during the winter of discontent, did not have a job to return to uh, by 1983. The winter of discontent as a concept has been an inexhaustible resource for conservatives pretty much ever since it happened. To me, it's like, you know, you see the BBC four music documentaries on a Friday and the 1960s is always a guy looking at a guardsman's jacket in Granny Takes a Trip equals the 60s. And the 70s equals bin bags, rats, corpses and the sex pistols, as if it's all part of the one package. It's really easy to see why this would work against Labour when it's in one of its left phases, when it's Michael Foote or when it's Corbyn. But it's even been used as a stick to beat someone like Ed Miliband with. Does the winter of discontent kind of trap Labour into being incapable of really properly engaging with the unions without paying an electoral price? Well, it's interesting because things have changed a lot over the intervening period of time. I mean, the first thing, I mean, one of the reasons why we're not seeing, I suppose, the same numbers of union members withdrawing their labour today is A, the number of union members in the workforce is drastically reduced. But secondly, also the power of the trade unions insofar as they had one, they had a kind of negative power, they didn't have a positive power. Yeah, they, they had the power to cause disruption. That negative power, that power to cause disruption has been very significantly reduced. Secondly, uh, I mean, Labour, you're absolutely right, has had the ghost of the winter of discontent uh, sort of dancing over its corpse in some sense over the intervening period of time. Miliband in particular changed the the constitution of the Labour Party to reduce the sense, uh, almost the symbolic sense, that the Labour Party was the party of the trade union movement. And it was a trade union movement that determined uh, conservative uh, Labour, (laughs) Labour Party policy, rather. And indeed, And possibly somewhat ironically, Corbyn would almost certainly never have become the leader of the Labour Party had it not been for those constitutional changes and the changes in the election process for the party leadership that led to a more member-based electoral system for the Labour Party. That, if you like, all of that in one sense is a legacy of the ghost of the winter of discontent for the Labour Party. But we're now in a situation in which the Labour Party has a much more distant relationship with the TUC and the unions than it did previously. And it's still a difficult issue for the Labour Party, clearly. And I think uh, I think Labour Party uh, and Starmer as its leader have been still relatively silent on the disputes that we're going through. They certainly haven't, despite a situation in which uh, there's high levels of support for at least some of these disputes, the Labour Party has not really come out, as it were, on the side of uh, those engaged in strike activity. It's a difficult issue for it. And in one sense, it became a difficult issue for it as early as the winter of discontent, if not before. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. 
Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. So Mark Twain said that history doesn't repeat itself, but it does sometimes rhyme. Is it foolish to imagine we're in a second winter of discontent now? I mean, we've got a spread of workers, railways, nurses, ambulance workers, civil servants, postal staff. As you said, we've got an energy crisis and not as severe inflation, but certainly severe in in terms of what we're used to. It's an interesting question. I mean, having written on the winter of discontent for, for a long time, I think the first piece I, I wrote on it was published way back in 1996. I've been asked many, many times in the intervening decades, is this a winter of discontent? Is this a winter of discontent? Is this a winter of discontent? I've probably been asked by 20, 30, 40 journalists to comment on whether <laughs> uh, we're living through a new winter of discontent. This is the first time in which I haven't just blanketly said, no, come back to me in the winter when it's cold. And if there are strikes still going on, then maybe it's winter discontent, because normally you're asked in the spring, in the autumn, in the summer, whatever. This is interesting, and it's interesting in comparison to the winter discontent, for some of the, for the actual winter discontent, for some of the reasons I think that you've pointed to. The first is that the basic economic condition in which we find ourselves, this adversity that I've spoken about, is comparable in some way with what was happening in the 1970s. So you have a period of relatively stable, benign economic conditions, relatively stable economic growth, relatively modest by by then normal standards, rates of inflation, disrupted by an external shock, in a sense, by something that happened elsewhere. Nothing to do with the British economy, particularly the Yom Kippur War, uh, the uh, Ukraine-Russia conflict. That's similar that creates a problem. And the problem is that you've got runaway inflation and workers want compensation for the fact that their wages, unless they're moving upwards and moving up very rapidly, do not allow them to go to the supermarket and to buy the goods that they're accustomed to buying. Things are getting tough. That is essentially the same situation in which we find ourselves now. So the parallels are quite similar. At the same time, the differences are, are, are equally important. So uh, union membership now is maybe 20%, just over 20% of the workforce. It was over 50% of the workforce in 1978-79. Secondly, the first thing, or the first sustained thing, really, the Thatcher administration did from 79 onwards was to reduce the power of the trade unions to cause the disruption of events like the winter of discontent. And that's made it much, much more difficult for unions to orchestrate, if you like, uh, a second winter of discontent type activity. It's quite impressive in one sense how much industrial, I mean, it's not just industrial, but how much how much public sector, particularly uh, disruption, is currently in place at the moment when you consider quite how difficult it is to get a legal strike organised, basically. So there are lots of significant differences. Final significant difference, uh, or potential one, uh, possibly the most interesting one, We remember the winter of discontent, I think, not just because of what happened during the winter of discontent, but what happened after it, the election of Margaret Thatcher. The winter of discontent didn't make the election of Margaret Thatcher inevitable, 
And it didn't make it possible where it wasn't possible beforehand, but it was the immediate precursor to that. And it changed what Thatcherism would become, I think. And it also probably bought Thatcher the time to stumble around and work out what her program was in the, in the early years. It's not clear to me that even if uh, the Sunak Conservative administration were to fall during this new autumn and winter of our new discontent, of contemporary discontent, it's not clear to me that we would see a transition of a similarly uh, significant kind. And if that's the case, we might not remember this new winter of discontent in the same way that we remember the previous one. Well, Labour was out of power for 18 years after the original winter of discontent. And obviously, it wasn't entirely solely down to that. But it does show you the the magnitude of the changes that can be wrought. And I guess we're going to find that out in the next couple of years. Colin, hey, thanks so much for joining me. It's been my pleasure. Thank you very much. It's good to know that you're a a winter of discontent hipster who was into it before it was cool. Absolutely. It was a great gift to me when I used to work on Mixmag because we could use the headline, now is the winter of our disco tent. (laughs) And uh, it went down very well. Thanks for joining us. And listeners, thank you for listening. If you would like to help us make our way through the current, maybe, winter of discontent, you are, of course, welcome to support us on Patreon. Just search Patreon Bunker Podcast to get the episodes early without adverts. You get lots of exciting merchandise as well, and you'll also be helping hardworking journalists to keep the lights on in our tiny bunker studio. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you tomorrow. The Bunker Daily was produced and presented by Andrew Harrison. The lead producer was Jacob Jarvis, with additional production from Jack Gerbertson, Kasia Tomaszewicz, and me, Alex Reese. Our marketing manager was Gina Richard. Music by Kenny Dickinson. The Bunker is a Podmasters production. <laughs>